I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, stand-up comedian Zarna Garg. And there's some things I'll just never get used to in this country. People love to say I love you all the time and to everybody. I hate it. (laughs) I've never said I love you to my husband. But if he said it to me, I'd know he's cheating on me. (laughs) With a white woman. Zarna's first comedy special, One in a Billion, came out on Amazon earlier this year. And her comedy videos on TikTok and Instagram have been watched hundreds of millions of times. But the story of how Zarna launched a comedy career in her 40s after being a stay-at-home mother of three who came to America at 16 without a single penny to her name is the most interesting story I have heard in a long time. Zarna talks about her deep love of raw onions, the unorthodox food she feeds her kids for breakfast, and she talks about her love of masala chai. So we're going to learn about the fairly modern origin story of masala chai with food writer Lena Trevetti Grenier. Chai means tea, and that is a mistake that people make all the time calling it chai tea. Oh, God bless you. (laughs) You've done a service to every South Asian out there. Thank you. (laughs) And are there universally disliked scents like onion breath, feet, durian? Or are the smells we like and dislike determined by the culture we live in? All of that coming up later in the show. But first, my conversation with Zarna Garg. You grew up in Mumbai, and sadly, when you were 14, your mom passed away. Pick up the story from there. Tell me what happened next. I mean, what happened next is what happens in every family. One parent dies and the other parent goes nuts because Mm -hmm. they didn't expect it. You know, I think my dad broke the day after my mom passed. He's like, you know what? I'm done parenting. You need to get married. Mm -hmm. I was the youngest of four. Three of my siblings were married. The last one was engaged to be married. I was the only one who was kind of the kid still around. My mother's death came very suddenly, was not expected. She was not ill. You know, it was a very out of the blue occurrence. In hindsight, as a parent myself now with three kids, if I had four kids, I might do the same. I might be like, I'm done. I cannot do this anymore. Somebody take all these kids and do something with them. But Zarna didn't want to get married and move out at 14. She loved school and learning. She wanted more for herself. And I grew up really like influenced by American culture, even though I lived in India fully. I I grew up watching everything people watched here. We could get bootleg copies of everything back home. I mean, I watched uh, Three's Company. Uh I don't know if you know that show. Uh, Family Ties, Growing Pains. So I, you know, I was like, I don't think everybody's always getting married. That's the one thing you see in American sitcoms. And it's like, the fun of being young and and having multiple dates and partners. And it was all so liberating for me sitting in India. It was such a revelation that you could live in a way that you just did what you wanted. Right. So I was very much like, you know, I don't want to get married. I don't think this is the move for me. And my dad, you know, not one to really be negotiating with his kids was like, okay, if you don't want to get married, you know, uh, you can't live here anymore. Wow. I think he was trying to call my bluff. To be Mm -hmm. really honest, he was like, she's going to capitulate. What does she mean? Yes, 14 and change is young, even for India. 
all my siblings were married as teens like by wow. 15 16 uh, you know if you're from a certain type of family it, it, that's not unusual and it goes on even today when your dad tells you at 14 15 that you can't stay at home your mind is thinking oh this means i can do pajama parties every day with my friends yeah this is going to be your great. mind is not thinking survival you're thinking i wanted to go to my friend's house anyway so I was like, fine, I don't have to live here. I have so many friends. I have so many friends. And then after two days of staying with my friends, people were like, my mom thinks you need to go home. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't really think this through. And now what do I do? You know, I honestly, I wish my story was like a heroic story. It was more like a desperate survival story. <laughs> Every day I found somebody else who was like, okay, you can stay here for a week. You can stay there. Cousins, uncles, aunts, neighbors. I mean, that is the beauty of living in a country like India. It is quite community-based. Yeah. It's not as individualistic as America tends to be. So uh, it was a it was a journey of like finding a new place to rest every day. You did that for two years. So you were only yeah. staying, you know, a night here and there, a week here and there. That sounds very tiring. It does in hindsight. I'm telling you, when I was in it, I was so preoccupied with how to stay in it that it was just sheer survival. And I really now, in hindsight, in 2023, looking back at those years, like that's the roots of my comedy, where it grew. Because people were so kind to me, and I went out of my way to add value to their lives, tried to be extremely grateful and generous back to them in what way I could. The biggest thing I think I added in a lot of their lives back then was that I kept things very light and funny because that's how I got invited to big events, big meals, Diwali, which is our Indian New Year. And I got invited to all these homes because they knew that if I was there, I would make everybody laugh and I would keep everything light and fun. Food was a big part of it. During those years, there were days when like, one meal was a question, you know, wh where would I go and what would happen? But because I could add value around a dinner table in particularly, that's why I always remind people even now in comedy that comedy is an art form for sure, but it is also a therapy and it is also a weapon. If you know how to use it right, it can get you a lot of things. And, and I'm living example of it. After two years, Zarna was able to move to the States to live with her sister in Akron, Ohio. She went to college and then law school and became a lawyer. She got married to a man of her own choosing and had three children. But after 16 years of staying at home with her kids, she was going cuckoo. You described yourself as... As cage, a cage tiger. Yeah. Cage tiger, yeah. You were unhappy being at home. How did you make this transition into comedy? Uh, not naturally. I wish it was like, oh, it was natural. Because I didn't know stand-up comedy was a thing. I didn't know that people did this for a living. All of this is not part of our community and our culture. I had never stepped foot in a comedy club before. I was really struggling with what to do. I wish I could do something that really spoke to my heart, filled a void. All my kids born and raised here in Manhattan. My daughter's like, mom, you should just become a comedian. All our friends love hanging around you. They laugh so much around you. And I was like, that's not a job. And then the three kids kind of ganged up on me and they were like, why not? Why wouldn't you explore it? And I was like, I, because I need to get paid. I need money. Like I was trying to be as literal and basic with them as possible. And they were like, mom, there is money in comedy. People do this for a living. 
And just to shut them up, I went to an open mic. I was like, you know what? Let me just go and look into this thing because I need to be able to say to them that I tried it. Because at that point, I had made them try so many things that they didn't want to do. You know, you're going to try chess and you're going to try violin. And so I decided to go to an open mic and that essentially changed my life. Zarna got on stage without a single prepared joke. She says she mostly just riffed and talked smack about her mother-in-law. And she got laughs. That open mic was in 2018 when she was 44 years old. But how does one go from an open mic to an Amazon comedy special in just five years? Stick around and find out. Zarna did her first real stand-up set in 2019 at the iconic Carolines in New York City. Of course, not long after, the pandemic hit and clubs shut down. So she took her comedy online and started making TikTok videos. Here's the thing, though. Sure, you can make money in comedy, but most people don't. Most people go do open mics. I mean, I live here in Seattle. I've been seeing some of the same local comedians perform for, honestly, 15 years. They still live in their tiny apartments. They haven't made it. How is your story different? You know, you go and do this open mic, and now you have an Amazon comedy special. You know, you have hundreds of millions of views on TikTok. How did you shift from an open mic to making money, making it a big career? I'll tell you, I went in with a very clear state of mind that if I do this, it has to be a business. Mm-hmm. I came into it at, as a 40 something woman, a mother of three kids. I just didn't have the luxury to just hang around the clubs and do open mics endlessly. I like doing everything with a cert- certain amount of intensity and seriousness. Well, one of the pieces of advice that I read, an article you wrote in Oprah Magazine or Oprah.com, which I've actually taken to heart and I keep thinking about is you were talking about going all in and just spending the money to really go all in. You were saying, you know, parents spend money to get their kids the best math tutor and the best tennis coach. But why aren't you getting yourself like a social media specialist or someone to make you a nice logo? And I don't have children, but I thought, oh my God, this is me. I never want to invest because it's not fun. I want to spend my money on a vacation when it could truly change your life to put some of your extra money into this goal that you have. Let other people who know what they're doing really help you and push you up. Yes. I do think that women in particular are guilty of not investing in ourselves. I'm building a business the way the Ford Motor Company was built, Microsoft was built. What would these guys have done when they built that first computer? They would have had to hire marketing. They would have had to hire sales and distribution. Can you give something that you invested in that you think really made a difference in your success? Yes. Uh, My social media coach. But I spend money on understanding how to create a social media account that speaks to who you're trying to reach. The amount of man hours I've spent watching YouTube tutorials, watching TED Talks, watching. And now I give speeches in this space exactly to help other people do it. And once I learned how to build that, it it revolutionized my game. I was no longer beholden to gatekeepers. That is amazing advice. Okay, we're going to talk about food now. I just think that Zarna's story is so fascinating. I wanted to spend some time letting her tell it. I grew up vegetarian. No one in my family ever ate meat. I actually personally don't believe in vegetarianism. It's not a thing that I I would crusade for. I wish I could eat a little bit of meat protein. I've been struggling to get protein my whole life. 
I wish I could just eat a piece of chicken, but it doesn't come naturally to me. I grew up in a family that was vegetarian. That was it. There was no conversation about it. So I'm curious about that with the vegetarianism. If you're saying it's it's not really like a part of your values necessarily, it's just the way that you grew up. Why is it that you then can't just eat a piece of chicken? Is it just psychologically embedded or does it make you feel sick? It's psych- No, it doesn't make me feel sick because I have done it. I have ventured and done like a little bit at a time. But if you don't think of something as food for 20, 30 years of your life and the first 20, 30 years, it's been hard to turn it on for me. I came from a world where eggs weren't even allowed in our house. Hmm. No one ever touched an egg. There was no talk. My mother was Jain. And Jainism has an even stricter interpretation of vegetarianism than, than Hindu vegetarian. My mom came from a world where uh, no one ate root vegetables. No hmm. onions, no garlic, no potatoes. Because they believe that if you pull the root of the vegetable out with it, then you're killing all the organisms that depend on that ecosystem to survive. I looked into Jin a little bit more. It's spelled J-A-I-N. I read that the other reason they don't eat root vegetables is so no bugs are harmed when the vegetables are pulled from the ground. The crux of the Jin religion is nonviolence. So they only eat foods that cause the least amount of harm to a plant. They also abstain from wine, butter, mushrooms, honey, and five kinds of fruit all in the fig genus. So I came from some version of that to looking at chicken and beef. I mean, I cook everything. I cook okay. chicken. I cook beef. I cook uh, steak. I know how to make lobster tail. I know how to make shrimp. I learned it all for my kids, but I don't eat any of it. I don't mm-hmm. taste it. Nothing. I learned yeah. one step at a time on YouTube what to look for, what to get it for taste. And luckily, I live in New York City. So anytime I need a taste test, there's always somebody in the building around. <laughs> so did you have a decision that you made when you had kids? that yeah. they were going to be vegetarian or not? Or did they just make their own decision? No, I, I was like completely against them being vegetarian. I said, if they grow up and choose to be, that's their choice. But look, being vegetarian in India is a very different thing than being vegetarian in America. Vegetarianism in America is largely reduced to quinoa and salads. Yeah, yeah. Vegetarian food in India is an extremely refined extremely developed palate. You could be healthy and be vegetarian in India, no problem. Not here. Here you're going to eat bagels. It's not healthy. And my kids are all athletes. That's another thing I decided very early on, that they will be more physically active than me and my husband were ever encouraged to be or allowed to be. In order to support that athletic lifestyle, I was completely against them being vegetarian. And that meant that I had to learn how to make everything. What would your last meal be? It would be all bad things, such <laughs> bad things. <laughs> it would be a deep dish pizza. Every vegetable you can imagine piled on top of it because I love veggies. It would be a big piece of chocolate cake. It would be a glass of wine because like I shouldn't drink, but I do. It would be all these things. It would be and it would be a great cup of masala chai. For her last meal, Zarna wants a deep dish pizza, chocolate cake, a glass of wine and a cup of masala chai. Is there like a certain recipe or a certain brand? What is your chai? So chai in America has been kind of doctored. Cinnamon, cloves, very sweet and very milky. Yeah. The chai I grew up drinking in India, in Bombay, was ginger, pepper, 
very spicy, light on the milk and light on the sugar, almost like a therapeutic uh, cold remedy. Because when you drank it, you felt a little sting in your throat. Yeah, I've had it. And it really is. You go, you, if you're not used to it, you cough a little bit because it's, yeah. whole, it's whole black peppercorn, right? Like you're using yeah. whole spices. Yeah. Do you make your own blend from whole spices? Yeah. So what is in yours exactly? Tell me the recipe. So ginger, fresh ground ginger. And I believe in ginger, ginger, turmeric. These things, I just believe that they're healthful herbs to have in your system. That's just me. So I grate the ginger. I crush the fresh peppercorns. Uh, I now have even started putting a little bit of honey instead of sugar in the tea. And now I have one kid who's vegan and one kid who's something else. So I make chai with almond milk, with oat milk. But the key of it is uh, loose leaf black tea from India, Assam, okay. ginger and pepper. That's very simple. Yeah. But, okay. but, you know, it sounds simple, but I'll tell you that balancing the ratios of the three things, because the easiest thing to go wrong is a lot of pepper, because then mm -hmm. it's so spicy, it's going to like burn your throat. Balancing the right amount, it takes a while to get it right. Masala chai. So masala means spice blend. Anytime you hear masala after something, it just means spice blend. That's food and culture writer Lena Trevetti-Grenier. She's written about the history of masala chai. As many people there are who are South Asian, that's how many recipes there are for chai. What is your relationship with masala chai? Uh, well, I grew up with it. My dad's from India and I grew up with my grandmother, my dad's mom, living with us kind of off and on throughout my childhood. My dad was never a big chai drinker. He would only make it when we had like relatives come over because like that was like the polite thing to do. But Modi Ben, um, that was my grandmother's nickname. We She would make it every morning and every afternoon at the same exact time. And I was kind of transfixed by her ritual and also confused by it. She would do her morning prayers and then she'd make the chai and then she'd sit down and she put it in a stainless steel cup. It didn't have any kind of like handle. And mm. then she had a shallow stainless steel kind of like saucer. The tea had to be like burn you hot, like lawsuit hot. Like that's what she liked. But then, <laughs> but then she would like tip it into the saucer, blow on it, wait for a second for it to cool and then sip it. Yeah. So I, I always found that ritual really interesting because it would take the lady like 20 minutes to finish this cup. I've always been like a speedy person, the way I talk, the way I live. And I was like, why can't you drink it faster, Modi Ben? What's wrong? And <laughs> I took a sip of it and it kind of like blew my mind, right? Like how could something spicy also be sweet? I didn't speak the same language as my grandma. She spoke Gujarati, I spoke English. There was a lot of cultural barriers. She grew up in India. I grew up in the middle of Illinois, so. This chai was a way for me to feel a little bit connected to her. But Lena didn't start brewing her own chai until after she graduated from culinary school. Pretty much up until that time, I had been teased pretty ruthlessly about being Indian, Indian American, um, made me try to distance myself from the culture, at least publicly. I didn't want to be the kid that was always teased. Yeah, so it took until I was in culinary school that people started asking me, like, do you know how to cook this dish? Do you know how to cook this Indian dish? And they weren't joking. They weren't like making fun of me afterwards. And I was like, I can own it again. I can be Indian again and like explore the food and, and all of the culture. And, and so it, it really felt safe for the first time. And that very first recipe I made was Modi Ben's chai. I mean, since then, it's been a daily ritual for me. Before this call, I 
brewed myself a cup of chai. <laughs> I have it right here next to me. I was surprised to learn that masala chai is a fairly recent invention. Indians drank what they called chai for centuries, but it was more of a medicinal brew. Spices like turmeric and ginger steeped with hot water to treat an ailment. But masala chai and the ritual of having a daily cup of tea started after the British moved to India and colonized from 1858 to 1947. The British wanted to break China's monopoly on the tea industry. So they came to India and started growing tea. They start these tea plantations and, of course, they need workers. So they basically go around the country to kind of lower class communities and convince people to sign on as essentially indentured servants. Uh, spoiler alert, they weren't treated well. <laughs> they were physically abusive. The bosses, they were sexually abusive. The trip to the plantation was very disease ridden. It was not a good situation for the Indians involved. So now they have tea, right? The British try to sell it and it's not selling. The British are like, we got to sell this. We got so much of it. How are we going to sell it? And so they created something called the Indian Tea Association. And it's basically made up of British owners. You know, we got we to gotta get Indians into drinking this tea. So they set up out on like a 40-year campaign to convince Indians to drink tea, right? So they launched this campaign in like 1901. So they would go to like railways and they would give you know, the tea dust and milk and sugar to vendors to get them to sell it. They went into financially well-off Indians' homes and showed them how to have a proper British tea service. Like they they infiltrated them from every single angle. And because they gave them the tea dust, it tasted terrible. And the, the vendors, they did what they've been doing for a long time, right? They put some masala in there. They made a spice blend and they put it in there to make it taste better. Right. And so that made the British pretty angry. <laughs> Queen Victoria. Was Why, though? Not... Why were they angry? It was adulterating the tea and they thought it would make them use less of the tea because the spice was in there. That was their fear. So they were like shutting down some of these Indian like chai valas that they had set up. If we look at it now, it's still here. That tradition has endured. I believe a majority of Indians drink some kind of tea, even if it's not masala chai. Well, I did a spam episode recently and it has a similar kind of feel where, you know, a lot of people were forced to eat spam when, right. uh, you know, they were forced into poverty because of war. And then the American soldiers came along and were giving it to them. And now right. it is so beloved in these cultures and such a part of, you know, like Filipino culture. And exactly. Then, you know, yeah. What became Hawaiian culture. And it's the same thing in India. And it's just an interesting concept where something that was so hard and such a bad time for a culture where there was a lot of death even ends up becoming a tradition that they associate with their own culture and they love. I mean, I guess it's just kind of a, right. a look at how adaptable we are and just how time heals old wounds. I wouldn't say that time heals old wounds, but I would say that it helps you get through it. Those wounds are still there. And there's been a lot of research into intergenerational trauma. You know, you can still feel it in your DNA, but it helps you get through stuff. As you've probably gathered, the sweet chai lattes that are popular in American cafes and coffee shops taste pretty different from the Indian masala chai. Lena says you can buy pre-made spice blends to make the Indian version, but for her, nothing compares to grinding fresh spices like ginger, cardamom, and black peppercorn and steeping them with tea and milk for her daily cup. My masala is a quarter teaspoon of ginger powder, a quarter teaspoon of whole peppercorn that I smash, and the more you smash it, the spicier it is. 
I'm a cardamom freak. So uh, anywhere between five and eight cardamom pods. Um, I will say if you use a really good spice, you don't need to use as much. My preference is to grind the spices fresh if possible. You know, when a spice is bruised or crushed or ground, immediately starts releasing its essential oils. That's where a lot of the flavor is. And what kind of tea do you mix it with? It's called CTC tea, which stands for crush, tear, curl tea. And that just explains the manufacturing process. And you can find it in any Indian grocery store. There's some really good spice companies that sell some like Diaspora Co. When we come back, Zarna shares the unorthodox dish that her kids eat every morning for breakfast and how comedy freed her up from cooking and cleaning. Zarna might not believe in the concept of vegetarianism, but every morning her kids sit down to a very healthy vegetarian breakfast. Oh, you mean the broccoli and the uh-huh. yeah, 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 yeah. I that see here's the thing: American breakfast almost feels like dessert to me. Yes. Yeah. It's a lot of sugar. It's a lot of like, I don't get it. As a mom, there's so little few times in the day where I control my kids. The rest of the day, they're out there doing their own thing or doing what school is teaching them to do or whatever. So when I have them in front of me, I want to shove as many vegetables I can in their mouths. I can shove as many fruits as I can in their mouths. And my kids actually happen to love broccoli. And I'm very proud to tell you, I am so proud to tell you that any number of kids have learned to fall in love with broccoli in my house. And it's the simplest, most ridiculous two second recipe. And yet all these kids who don't eat a single vegetable in their own homes come to my home and eat a whole bowl of fresh broccoli. But because I saw that my kids actually enjoyed eating it at dinner time, I was like, why are we not starting our day with this? Because I, as a mom, would feel so good if they if I knew that at the beginning of the day, they had had a whole bowl. But and also I work a lot at night, so I'm not home at dinner time a lot. Yeah. So now I have to be less suspicious of what's going on at dinner time. <laughs> so, okay, what is this magic two ingredient recipe for broccoli that all the children love? It's nothing. It's like literally broccoli cut in little florets. Yeah. Steamed in a little bit of water, not a lot of water, a little bit of water, and then steamed for less than two minutes. Mm-hmm. A minute and a half, 90 seconds, steam but not soft. And then drizzle a really good olive oil on it and sprinkle a really good salt on it. That's it. Yeah. If I want to go nuts, I'll add garlic. I don't have to do any of that. Literally, lightly crunchy broccoli, steamed broccoli with salt and a good olive oil. Everybody loves it. I was like, you know what? We will be the boring family. I have learned that the more boring we are in our diet, the healthier it is. Yeah. The less adventurous we are, the less stuff we put into it. I could have been your child because when I was a kid and my parents made something that I didn't want, I asked for steamed broccoli for dinner. That's what I asked for. Steamed broccoli and rice pilaf. And that was my dinner. And I loved it. Yeah. It, listen, why not start the day with it? What's the, There's no rule about it's not in the Constitution. I know. I've always thought that, too, because there's these ideas of like, this is a breakfast food. This is a dinner food. It was the cereal companies, it was all marketing that made people believe that cereal is a normal breakfast. No one in my house is allowed to eat cereal. It's not even a thing. 
So going back to your deep dish pizza, I saw a little video that you posted. It could have been a while ago on TikTok um, saying, you know, how to know you're a Desi without saying you're a Desi. And you put a whole bunch of stuff on top of your pizza. What do you put on top? I couldn't figure out what it was in the video. So we Indians love onions. It's mm-hmm. a thing. We love onions. Like oh, so much Indian food comes with chopped raw onions on the side. But of course, because we live in America, I mean, I'm speaking for us now. We're very conscious of the whole onion breath and onion uh-huh. thing, right? Like when you're out and about, you don't want to smell like that person. And so when we're home and we're making the pizza, one of the most basic things is like piling up a whole thing of onions, raw, no caramelization, nothing, just raw and lots of it because we love it so much. I'm telling you that my pizza slice looks like a big giant salad (laughs) fell on top of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all raw onions. Okay, that's very interesting because you're saying you have to, you know, mind your breath in America. Does that mean that culturally in India, people don't care about onion breath? You know, I mean, listen, this is a whole another discussion. Culturally, in pe- in India, people have a lot of opinions on body odor and all of it. Like, the idea that you're going to, like, rub aluminum in your armpits for life, I am not sure exactly where I stand because I live in America and I've been living this Americanized lifestyle my whole, like, for 30 years now. But there is something to be said for natural perspiration yep. and natural foods and natural, you know, I, I don't know. Yes, in India, people wouldn't care. They eat raw onions everywhere. What Garlic, garlic yeah. is a big piece of Indian food. And I've never seen people rush to go brush their teeth after they got done eating like a whole bucket of raw onions and garlic in a restaurant. And we all kind of just live like that. But here we're so conscious of it that I, I'm very hesitant to do it in public. These companies made us believe you have to wear deodorant and your hair has to smell like a field of flowers and we're supposed to mask all of our natural smells. The idea that Americans don't like onion breath, but Indians might not mind it, is such a fascinating idea to me. I assume that it might be a scent that was universally disliked, something embedded in our human DNA. But perhaps our scent preferences are determined by culture. One reason I thought that humans might be repelled by the smell of onions is because the chemical compound in onions that makes them super pungent, that make you cry when you slice into them, is a defense mechanism. Onions are trying to keep predators, like bugs, from eating them when they're growing underground. I needed to know more, so I called up Asfa Majid, professor of cognitive science at the University of Oxford and co-author of the study, The Perception of Odor Pleasantness is Shared Across Cultures. Professor Majid says people have always assumed that culture plays a big part in our perception of smell and taste. When you travel around the world, you see people eating all sorts of things that seem kind of disgusting (laughs) from your own perspective. So in Sweden, they eat this fermented fish that just smells very strong. Um, And if you go to Malaysia, people are eating durian where hotel signs say don't bring the fruit into the room because it's got such a pungent smell. And so it seems as if there's big cross-cultural differences, what one culture finds really uh, attractive to eat, other cultures find disgusting. 
And so we decided to try and test this proposal. They recruited hundreds of people to smell the same 10 cents and rank how much they liked them. The participants were from all over the world, from hunter-gatherer communities in Mexico and Southeast Asia to the U.S. and countries in Europe. We just got people to smell these odors and then arrange them from the ones that they liked the most to those they liked the least. And to our surprise, what we found was that culture had very little to do with what people found attractive. It only predicted around 6% of the data. Only 6% were influenced by culture. 54% was personal taste and 41% had to do with the molecular identity of the scent. The scent that everybody liked was uh, vanillin, which is vanilla. And the one that people like the least in the set of odors that we tested is molecule that you'll find in cheeses, um, but also in sweaty feet. To be fair, they didn't include onions in their experiments. But we do know that familiarity with an odor will make you like it more. So things that you experience over and over again become nicer. So there's a way that things can be modulated by experience. But it's kind of interesting to see where that plasticity lies. So if we look at infants, for example, they already show preferences for some kinds of odors over others. So they like the smell of vanilla, for example, we know that. And they dislike um, odors that adults dislike. Odor preferences are shaped by what mothers are eating during pregnancy. So in one study, scientists had mothers in their last trimester of pregnancy eat aniseed, uh, which is a licorice sort of, sort of smell, or garlic. And babies whose mums um, had been eating aniseed liked the smell of that, but babies whose mums hadn't been didn't like it. And it was the same for garlic. Of course, to be clear, we don't know if all Indians are fine with onion breath. We just know what Zarna thinks, what Zarna has told us. But perhaps this is a case of a culture that has gotten very used to eating and smelling a lot of raw onions. One more question, because I know your life changed so much when you started doing comedy. And, you know, in those 16 years when you started feeling like the caged tiger, have you changed how you are as a, quote, you know, homemaker? Do you not have to cook as much anymore? Have you given up some of those duties or are you doing both? No. You cannot do both. I've let so much go. So many balls drop all the time. And you know what? Everybody's living. All these things that I lived and died by, all these insane, I mean, we're not even going to, because this will be a three-hour conversation if I tell you all the insane pressure society puts on mothers. Mm -hmm. If it was up to the dads, none of it would exist. I'm being honest. Yeah. But because the moms were hyperventilate about every form and every book and every book report and whatever, now balls just drop and it is what it is. There are days when I have no time. I, I literally will be like, guys, just eat bananas. I don't know what to say. I've got to do this. And everybody's fine. And my kids are happy to see me happily engaged in, in work that is making me happy. So are they doing more, like you said, more of like packing their own lunches, making dinner sometimes? Are you off the hook for cooking? Absolutely. And thank God for modern luxuries. Thank God. That's another thing. Moms, take out exists. Why are we killing ourselves? You thank God for Uber and Uber Eats and all of those things. Those are the things that are making my job and my career possible. And I have no shame and nor any guilt over using all of it. 
Order a pizza, cut up an onion. There, you cooked. There you go. <laughs> and that was Zarnagarg's last meal. I keep reading these articles. She's a late bloomer. She's a late bloomer. And I'm like, she was 44 when she started. I'm 43. I feel like it's not old. This is not old. Like Julia Child started her cooking career when she was 50. As you wrote in an article, you know, the founders of Home Depot and McDonald's, they were over 50. I don't understand this narrative of making it seem like you're this old grandma starting a new career. Exactly. And I didn't even know it until somebody pointed it out to me. They're like, you started so late. I was like, I did. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sarna. It was such a thrill to speak with you. And I love what you're doing for other women out there. I love that you're hopefully encouraging other brown women to live out their dreams. I'm glad you found your happiness and you are no longer a cage tiger. You're just a a free tiger, a beautiful free tiger. Thank you. Thank you. You're so sweet. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You can stream Zarnagarg One in a Billion on Amazon. Listen to her new podcast, The Zarnagarg Show, where she is in conversation with her husband and her kids. And you can follow her on social media. Find a link to all of that in the show notes. Thanks to Lena Trevetti Grenier. You can find her recipe for masala chai in the show notes. And thanks to University of Oxford professor Asfa Majid. If you like the show, please write out a quick review on Apple Podcasts. Here's an example of a recent five-star review. Meal Schmeal, it's the host that makes it the most. Love this podcast so much. Yes, the content is fun and informative, but it's the host that really pulls it all together. She is fun, engaging, and creates a conversation with her guests that the listener feels a part of. Love it. Keep it up. Well, thank you, JMHK11. Your Last Meal was created, hosted, and produced by me with production help from Sarah Bernard and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Original theme music by Prom Queen. Your Last Meal is a product of Cascade Public Media in Seattle. Make sure you're following along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E. You can sign up for my free newsletter, rachelbell.substack.com. That's where you can find out about events and giveaways first. On that note, we are doing a live show in Seattle in November with a very special guest that you are not going to want to miss. I'll let you know when tickets are available. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. You get your first chunky chai, and it's like, (laughs) it blows your mind in the worst way possible. Yeah. So you're not going to start a chain of masala chai shops called Chunky Chai? (laughs) No. Oh, my God. But a band, maybe. I might do a band. Yes. You know the deal. I'm going to ask you questions. You've told these stories a million times before, but you're going to tell them like you've never told them in your life. Done. Okay.